This is the Observations Podcast for Friday, the 10th of March, 2023, if I have my years correct. Welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be back. It's also good to be back with our, our, our technical problems essentially solved. And so we are both uh, here and both ready to go. I am, of course, as always, Dale Franks. I'm Michael Wade. I got something I want to talk about, and I'm not sure... I'm not sure how I want to talk about it, but as you know, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, released a whole bunch of January 6th video from all of the surveillance footage at the Capitol to, of all people, Tucker Carlson, which I think is kind of weird that he didn't just release it to all of the press as a whole, but Okay, so now Tucker Carlson has his hand on it. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard for me to escape the sense that Tucker Carlson is manipulating what he's releasing for political, ideological, partisan purposes. Well, have you watched any of it? Yeah, I have. And it it, it, it strikes me, and it certainly struck my, my, my wife as well, who was watching it, as saying, oh, look, see, this was mostly a peaceful demonstration. Mostly pe- peaceful, which one could say about, say, the BLM demonstrations of of 2020. They uh, were, many did say. Yeah, fiery and mostly peaceful. Here is, I think, my problem. I am really tired of being manipulated. I am tired Mm -hmm. of the manipulation that went on at the January 6th committee where they had their own story to tell and they told it. And I suspect that Tucker Carlson has a different story he wants to tell. And I'm thinking that the truth is probably somewhere very much in the middle. I do not believe that this was an insurrection that left our republic hanging by a thread for several hours on January 6th. That's that's just gobsmackingly stupid. I also don't believe that it was a bunch of fluffy kitties and happy puppies who were largely gambling through the Capitol. You know, reality is complex and it's messy And events like this, which turn riotous, and I think based on much of the video I've seen, it turned riotous. At the same time, there were probably a lot of people who were not interested in a riot. There were probably people who were kind of in the middle or the back of the crowd who, when they finally got up there and saw doors were open, they just assumed that they could go, you know, punsing right in and take pictures or whatever. I'm sure that was a mixture of good and bad things happening that day. What I would like is a balanced account and somebody who doesn't have a partisan or political axe to grind to go over it so that I don't have to go over even assuming I were given the opportunity, 10,000 hours of video myself, because I have a life. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I totally get that. I think part of the problem is that there was such a huge narrative that went on for two years, uh, almost three years, um, that 
needs to be countered before you can even begin to get to the, you know, what really happened, you know, overall. Um, there was certainly violence. We know that. Seen lots of footage of it. Um, there were certainly rioters among the MAGA crowd. Uh, we've seen that footage as well. But of the, I think it was something like 2,000 people or so that, uh, that participated in this, um, you know, riots, uh, wandering through the Capitol, you know, however you want to frame it. Um, there have been hundreds who have been held without bail, without trial. And then when they get to trial, they're not allowed, they weren't given, uh, you know, uh, the exculpatory evidence. They were forced into these plea deals. Um, they have been uh, essentially ruined, and some of them never even entered the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, they're the essentially way, political prisoners. And by the way, I'm I'm happy with the term riot because that's what I think it was. I'm unhappy, I think it was I'm unhappy with the term insurrection because I absolutely do not think that that's what it was. Well, if it was, it was a pretty uh, <laughs> it was pretty doomed to fail if you're not even armed and have no actual leaders or direction or anything else, not to mention, what are you going to do? So you take over the Capitol. That doesn't, like, change anything. I mean, Congress can meet anywhere. They can be, meet at the Hilton Garden Inn if they want. It's still Congress. Um, but anyway, th that uh, aside, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the one, the, the QAnon shaman guy. Yeah, Jacob uh, Charmsley or Chalmsley, whatever his last name is. Something like that, yeah. And how the video that uh, Tucker aired, aired um, was interesting in that it was completely exculpatory for what he was charged with. Uh, and, and matter of fact, even the, the, the bad stuff where he's shouting and, you know, walking amongst uh, congressional halls unattended, you never see him be violent. And that's, that's what he was charged with. Um, you see him being led and let into the Senate chamber by the, the police themselves. Um, it seems to me he was massively overcharged. His attorney at the time uh, has come out and said, no, we were not given this evidence, even though we asked for it lots of times. It would have made a huge decision in, in the sentencing and in the charging. So... I mean, that's a serious travesty. And if they did it to him, who else did they do it to? Well, that, you know, that brings up the, the problem that I have with a lot of this is that this video has largely been unreleased for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. wasn't even released to many of the defendants, uh, despite the fact that there were discovery requests that were made. And, and I don't know whether they were simply lied to and told, oh, sorry, we don't we don't have anything for you. We've we've looked over it all. Um, but you know, again, they didn't release all of that video to the defense attorneys either, uh, that was released to, to Tucker. So, I mean, there does seem to be, uh, at the very least, uh, a lighting past the discovery requirements, which in, in, in a free country for a criminal trial are pretty freaking important. You have a, a an absolute duty, which by the way, when you look at the people who have been convicted, I think we're probably at 68 
of the 600-ish or so who have actually been convicted of a felony charge. The vast majority of the rest, all misdemeanors, all things like, you know, trespassing, yeah, trespassing, unlawful parading, being found in a restricted area. Um, you know, these are all, well, I say misdemeanors, but like in, in the, the, the shaman's case, he got 41 months. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, three and a half years. That's, yeah. that's a while for a misdemeanor. Yeah. And yet most of these people are being, being convicted of misdemeanors. Now there are a couple of people who were convicted because they whacked a cop on the head with a, a, a flagpole or a sign or something yeah. like that. Well, I got bad news for you. If you hit a cop uh, and you get caught, what happens. <laughs> man, you're probably going to get charged with a felony. It generally works that way. Um, but it, it, it's, um, it's not good if the government, I mean, we have this thing. I mean, these people tried to overthrow the government of the United States. They tried to mount a coup that once they prevented Congress from meeting, blah, 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 and Donald Trump would then be president for life. Um, yeah. yeah oh, none of that was true. Okay. Um, why isn't anybody being charged with it? And, and But that narrative is there. And so right. how much is that narrative interfering with the police's duty to provide, and not just the police, but obviously the U.S. attorney who is in charge of these cases, or U.S. attorneys who are in charge of these cases. What about their duty to provide all exculpatory material as well as just, you know, whatever they right. this is a solid i mean brady is still very good law and strongly enforced um well you say that but well when it's known that there that evidence was withheld i mean how would you I mean, you can't prove <laughs> something uh, that you have never seen or have no idea even exists um so this is gonna come back to bite the prosecutors a little bit. I mean, let's face it, they're going to get a slap on the wrist and get a, a solid um, chewing out from uh, like Royce Lambert and, and some of the other judges. But yeah, and, and look, by part. the way, these people all took plea deals for the most part. I mean, very few of them went to trial. <clears throat> they pled guilty. Their case is over. Um, right. They're not going to be able to walk back into federal court and say, hey, hey, take these back sees. Um, well, that's not true. Um, they can't appeal. There's nothing to appeal. Um, and they actually, I think it's fairly common, and don't quote me on this, but I think it's fairly common when you sign a, a plea deal in a criminal case, you also say, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to appeal anything. Um, but in the case where new evidence comes to light, that tends to either mitigate or prove innocence, um, then you can absolutely reinduce that, uh, reintroduce that and ask for a new trial, um, as well as for sanctions against the attorneys for not uh, meeting their uh, Brady obligations. So th there's definitely a lot of play here. And, and like you said, a lot of these people took plea deals. Um, I mean, they were basically forced to, they didn't have much uh, of a choice because all they were shown was evidence that, you know, 
was interpreted by the prosecution to show that they were guilty. And that's all the jury was going to see. The The defense wasn't allowed to put on almost any defense. So, I mean, when you're facing that sort of thing, of course you plead deal. Yeah, you try I, to get I, the least amount of time as possible. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if you know you're looking at a felony stretch of five to ten yeah. and the the prosecutor comes up and says, you know, for you, senor, you know. Yeah, I'll do you a, a, a good price. Yeah, I'll do you 18 months on a misdemeanor. And then you don't have a felony conviction. It's a misdemeanor. And what the hell? A couple of years from now, you can ask to have it expunged. Right. So, I mean, of course, a lot of people are going to take that deal. And that's, I mean, that's a problem throughout the criminal justice system. But in this case, it's especially egregious because other than those, those few, um, you know, dunderheads who were, who were actually violent, broke stuff, uh, hit cops, um, hurt people. I mean, the vast majority of them really didn't do anything. There were little old ladies staying within the cordon ropes and like, they're on a tour. I mean, maybe they shouldn't have been there. And, and I say maybe uh, advisedly because the doors are open for you by the cops, the ones supposedly providing security, and you wander through and then leave. Yeah, to see, I, I know, but that's where it gets super complex because you are a police officer and having been through riot control training uh, myself as a, as a police officer. Um, one thing that you don't want to do is piss off 10,000 people when there's a hundred of you. All I right? get it. You, you got to pick your battles. You're, you're highly trained, but quantity is a quality of all, uh, all of its own. And Absolutely. so what you do, you try to de-escalate. You try to... Of course. And so, you know, it, you you have to ask yourself the question, okay, so do I pull out my piece and cap about 10 or 12 of these suckers? Right. <laughs> and then when reload time comes up, take my chances. <laughs> or, you know, do I pull back? Because I'm looking around and I ain't got no horses and... <laughs> I don't have the National Guard or anything like that. And by the way, we could probably discuss for a long time the security failures of that. Yes. But and that was never brought up in the J6 committee. Yeah. And ultimately, it was the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who had, uh, you know, was in charge of uh, security for Congress. She did nothing. Matter of fact, she apparently told people to back down. Trump had offered National Guardsmen, excuse me, for that day, just to make sure, because he had been informed that there were some credible threats. Okay, let's mobilize the National Guard. Nope, we don't want them. No, nope. and so if you're just one of the cops that are there facing, you know, four or 5,000 people and you and your six buddies, look, they're getting in the Capitol anyway. So sure, you might as well back off and open the doors. Because you're not going to stop them. And what was so bad about? And that? by the way, nobody's coming to, to to ride to your rescue if this if this thing if you do something that escalates the situation and it turns south. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Matter of fact, it was almost like they prevented anyone from coming to the rescue. Now, look, I think the chief of the Capitol Police seems like he's a bit of an asshole. And in fact, um, some of these cops that have, that testified in front of the J six committees, they all strike me as a bit of an asshole as well. Yeah, um, I tend to agree with you. But that aside, 
when you're just surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people and you know that there's preservation no makes it feel yeah you know yeah, yeah maybe we can all be Wyatt Earp and say you know I'm not gonna get all of you we're gonna get a couple of you guys up front there <laughs> <laughs> you know so, like, it's like, no I understand it's like uh, yeah Kurt Russell in Tombstone yeah. They may get me, but it won't stop me from turning your head into a canoe. Into a canoe. <laughs> yeah. Jerk no, that smoke yeah. wagon and get to work. <laughs> that was Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, it was. Super fat Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So uh, getting back to the original point that, that you raised, I absolutely agree with you. It would be really nice if we had some real reporters who would dig into this stuff, show the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and let people decide, but you know, let's not go with narratives. I hate the narratives. Well, one thing and, I will have to say, ProPublica does have a, um, now again, I don't know how it was curated or how it got there. And I, again, don't have time to watch all of it, but ProPublica actually has a time-stamped sort of minute-by-minute minute collection of videos that they pulled off social media and stuff right. like that. So the people that were taking it you know, at the time. Right. And they just have a whole webpage that is just nothing but what seems to me to be hundreds of videos that were taken at the time. So, yeah, from private, uh, yeah. from the people who were there. Yeah, they just pulled that off of social media, right. basically, from, from people who were there. But that's not the surveillance video, and that's what I want to see. And look, what I would expect to see in that surveillance video is a mixture of assholes trying to duke it out with the cops and trying to break in, like that one uh, video down in the, the Capitol garage where they were trying to shut the garage doors. And there were all kinds of people outside who were throwing stuff under that door and trying to prop it open, and ultimately they did. And the garage right. doors, for safety reasons, started opening up, and the cops are all in there. All right, it's, it's, you're done. We're not stopping these folks. You might as well step out of the way, raise your hands and say, come on, come on into the garage, folks, because they're coming in anyway. But clearly, that is an unauthorized entry into Congress. I mean, you Absolutely. know, when the cops are closing a, a garage door and you're throwing furniture under it and you're doing everything you can to keep that door from closing. And then when you manage to do that, you all start piling in. OK, you know, you're part of a riot. Yes. Absolutely. So I expect to see that. I also right. expect to see Mima from Florida in her Trump hat walking through, you know, with her little, you know, Kodak uh, <laughs> uh, camera and taking pictures inside the cam the Capitol and being completely oblivious to the fact of what else may be going on in there. I expect it to be a wild mixture of all of that because you know what? Riots and protests even riots that turn violent, that generally are. I mean, it's very rare that you have a riot where 10,000 people are just filled with righteous indignation. Usually it's 100, 200 people who sort of set it off. And everybody else, I mean, look, you're 10, 15 rows back in this crowd. You don't know what's going on. Right. And most of the time, yeah, there's the that time whole you... mob mentality that people get caught up in the... Uh... I mean, there, there's actual real psychological studies on this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We get caught up in doing things they wouldn't normally do just because the mob's doing it. And everybody else is going into the Capitol. So why don't you go into the Capitol? And then, right. you know, six weeks later, the FBI asked you to turn yourself in at the local FBI field office because, well, you're an insurrectionist. 
Right. <laughs> and a lot of them did. Yeah. Amazingly enough. And then, and then the whole thing about just keeping these people in jail. Yes, that that's disturbing to me. Uh, the, the fact that they've been held without bail, um, you know, pre-trial detention. It, and they've been kept for over a year. And when most of these people, so a misdemeanor is defined as um, a, 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 a an offense that could put you in jail for a year or less. I mean, that's what a misdemeanor is. And since most of these people were in jail for misdemeanors, misdemeanor trespass, misdemeanor parading, or whatever it's called. I, and they should have been released a long time ago. Um, yeah, at this point, the, the the result of the trial is moot in terms of their life. They've already served the, the sentence pre-trial. Right. Which, by the way, is not how this is supposed to work. How do you get... But, of course, then we get back to prosecutors overcharging, which is what yeah. they always do. Because... Yeah. But if you were charged with, you know, misdemeanor parading, and I mean actually charged, if that was what they had arrested and had you in jail for, um, there just seems to be a measure of, and I don't know what else to call it other than malevolence for a judge who looks at you at your arraignment and says, oh, they're putting in you here for a uh, for a misdemeanor. Um you didn't actually hurt anybody. There's no allegation that you did anything. Yeah, I, I, I think we have to deny you bail. Boom. And then you're off to jail. Right. That just seems hugely unfair. And yet it happened. And sure. And people- especially when you compare it to how the rioters from Trump's inauguration were all just let go. Uh, the rioters um, who sent... Uh, you know, the president's church on fire, St. John's, um, who tried to tear down the statue of, uh, I can't remember if it was Lafayette and Lafayette Square, or if it was Andrew Jackson or both, um, who tried to attack the White House. None of these people have been charged with anything. And they won't injured be. all kinds of, of, of government officials. Uh, and they, they just get let go constantly. And it's... The unfairness alone uh, is one thing. And by the way, it's hard to escape the idea that the reason why they're being held there and the reason they're held there without bail is because if you just let them all go and let them all just go back to their homes and go back to their lives, wait for their trial dates, it becomes a lot harder for them to become insurrectionists who came within an ace of overthrowing the republic, doesn't it? Right. And that's what it is. It's it's hugely political um and it it, it's a a complete bastardization of what the government is supposed to do and what it's allowed to do frankly um so many rights have been violated it's it's a little scary yeah but you know they're all they're all maga uh rubes and hayseeds so what does it matter Unfortunately, that's how uh, the media treats it, and that's how they seem to think of it. Um, you know, it's it's a whole different ball game when it's their own ox getting gored, but they don't care about that. And it's just that that that's just a, so fundamentally against everything that this country is about. The whole point to this experiment 
was that we were all treated equally under the law. And it's just become so obvious that there are two tiers to the justice system. And people are getting fed up about it. Rightly so. I mean, I'm fed up about it. By the way, I don't know, kind of specific to this J6 stuff, um, if you saw the Naomi Wolf apology letter. Yes, I read that today. That was very, very interesting. I mean, I'm not going to say she's been red-pilled, but maybe half red-pilled. <laughs> uh, it was a pretty deep look. Now, she blamed it all on the media, but she did take responsibility for it. Well, it was just something I thought I, I just, you know, of course that's what happened because <laughs> these people are bad. Um, but it was a pretty damn good exegesis of how being force fed all these lies by the dominant media presence really sets uh, the tone for how the general electorate um, views other people, their, their fellow Americans, and how they approach these sort of issues uh, with just hate in their hearts. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the reason why a Republican cannot get a fair trial in D.C., uh, certainly not in New York City. Um, I doubt in San Francisco or L.A. either. Uh, th that's that's a problem. That's a serious, serious problem. Well, uh, I have my problems with Naomi Wolf. Her apologies. I have a lot of problems with Naomi Wolf. Her apologies mean little to me other than the fact that, oh, four years later, you've now decided to, you know, be honest. Um, but literally, and look, we, we've been doing this, Michael, for what, almost 20 years now? God damn, it has been that long. Yeah, it has been that long. Um, <clears throat> I am not a PhD um, in the public eye, a media person living in New York with, you know, who, who, by the way, has access to national media almost at will. I mean, she's on TV fairly regularly. Um, yet funny that all of the things that she apologized for, I knew were bullshit four years ago. Yep. She's just finding out now. Right. And it does, by the way, though, speak to a deeper problem. I, I, I think that if you are four years into this and you're still parroting you know, the mainstream media's lines on this stuff, well, you're probably just a fool and I don't need to listen to anything else that you say. However, for the average person... Works clearly. Here's the problem. If I have a news media that lies to me, which, by the way, I think is undeniable, and I think that's true, as you and I have discussed before, whether you're talking about Fox News or whether you're talking about MSNBC, they're telling you different lies. But we have this idea, and it was relatively true but back in the old days, like you know, the Walter Cronkite days. Say whatever you want about Walter Cronkite and sneaking his political positions in, but he certainly wasn't as blatant about it as they are today. Uh, but at the time, news at all the networks, which is where everybody pretty much got their news anyway, news at all the networks was seen as a money-losing uh, public service. A loss leader, right. Yeah, it's going to keep the FCC off our back if we have a news division. Yeah, we're going to lose money off the news news division, but we've got so much TNA on Friday and Saturday night 
that we can make it up on that rather than, you know, Mima and Papa watching Walter Cronkite at 5.30 p.m. And I, I think there was a different ethos with the news then. When Ted Turner came along and came up with CNN and we had this explosion of cable news, which at the same time, changes in leadership at the major networks, CBS first, and then ABC and NBC, the idea became, hey, why are we treating the news division as a, as a money-losing proposition? They should be making money just the way every other division of the corporation makes money. And we got away from this public service idea. And of course, the, the cable companies operated explicitly on a for-profit uh, for profit basis. And then the question becomes, if I got to make money, am I going to make more money by having boring old Walter Cronkite go on? That's the way it is. Or am I going to make a lot more money by throwing red meat to a selective demographic? And Fox figured out and everyone else quickly figured out as well. We're going to throw red meat to a particular demographic. Well, CNN figured that out. Uh, well, yeah, because they had the rather in the eighties experience of uh, you know Desert Storm happening um, when uh, I mean they were only a couple of years, a few years into it, and when they were able to put on twenty four hour uh, news about the latest happenings in Iraq and Kuwait, um, that just like that propelled them uh, forward. And then you started seeing, uh, you know, all the competitors uh, come out like, wait a minute, there's something to this. <laughs> so you get CNBC and MSNBC right. and Fox News and all these cable news companies. And they make their living by selling a narrative to whatever audience they've selected to sell a narrative. Sure, to. yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and think about like a, a CNBC was um and still is i mean anybody who works with markets uh stock traders insurance brokers you know anybody that's dependent on what's going on in the business world and in the economy they have that on all day long and it is informative i mean it's misinformative too just like anything else you know but it, it does at least give you live updates of what's going on um it gives you a lot of of uh, interesting people who will expound upon what they think these trends mean and whatsoever, you know, so on. Yeah, but you know, I, I would say that that you could probably watch Fox Business and get something very similar. I mean, at the end of the day, I agree. No, that's I, yeah. I, yeah I'm, uh, I'm saying the same they're thing. kind of exceptions because they you are even so... put it on the radio in say um, San Diego. Yeah, well, but you see, here's the thing: they are so narrowly focused on the markets that. Politics tends not to intrude as much onto either as CNBC yeah. or Fox Business as it would on the main cable channels. I mean, when you look at, and by the way, Pat Buchanan was the master of this. Why do we want to have news in primetime? Let's have me yelling at Michael Kinsley for an hour, and we'll probably get a lot more viewers. And by, by golly, he was right. And that's what it has turned into. The downstream effect of that is you have an electorate who only knows what they learn from whatever their, you know, favored 
narrative shiller is shilling to them, and they don't even recognize the existence of, you know, alternative facts. And so what you end up with is a, yeah, alternative facts. What you end up with is, is or, or as some would call them, hate facts. What you, end, what you end up with is this, is a dumbed down electorate who literally cannot make reasonable electoral decisions about policy matters, which by the way, you may have noticed as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we're not. No, and I think it's even worse than that because what you end up with is activists um, who regularly watch one channel or another. Um, and then the rest of the people who are just like, I don't know, I'll just go, oh, I like this guy or that gal, uh, and I'll just watch that. And they pick up and then they talk to their friends, some of who may be more in the activist category. And so like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. President uh, Trump was like peeing on hookers. Oh, that's that's really bad. <laughs> you know, and, and who has time, you know, uh, I got to move these TVs. You know? <laughs> I've got to do some. I've got work to do. I don't have time to be paying attention to all this crap. Yeah, so, well, you know that's the other problem. Um, Chris was telling me earlier this week about this customer that she has, and they got into a somewhat political conversation because obviously with customers you don't, you know, yeah. there's a couple of things you probably shouldn't talk about: politics and religion being one of the top two. Number two, yeah, yeah. Um, and he just happened to say, apparently. Yeah, I'm. I'm not so sure this Joe Biden is a very good president. <laughs> really, I'm. I'm shocked. Shocked to learn this. <laughs> and by the yeah. way, I suspect this was a person that happily pulled the lever for Joe Biden in 2020. Exactly, based on you know very little knowledge just on whatever narratives are out there that uh trump was crazy he was going to start world war three he's a racist he's a nazi blah 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 joe biden's a state you know known entity he's uh middle of the road none of which is true um and look what we got i mean we we, we literally predicted all the things that would happen <laughs> Anybody who's watched Joe Biden for the last 50 years has got to know that the man is, first of all, adult. A complete adult. I mean, Joe Biden is just dumb. Yeah. And that's why he was called in the Senate, slow Joe Biden. He's not a smart fella. Um, <laughs> and he is an opportunist. And he is a grifter. And he always has been. And, and he's quite adept at that. Incredibly adaptive. Yes, well, th that doesn't require intelligence, just a rather no, low animal not. cunning to be able to pull. Well, that's that just it. That's what he has. He has that, he's got that uh, closer's mentality, right? Always be, be closing. closing. <laughs> Coffee is for closers. I mean, and it's worked out for him. I mean, this guy has never held a private sector job, ever. Well, except when he was a lifeguard. Yes, <laughs> in the days when he was consorting with the likes of Corn Pop and what have you. I mean, he has fumbled his way to the top just by sticking around.
Uh, he was head of the Senate Foreign um, Relations Committee. Again, just by sticking around because the Senate runs everything on seniority. And that was for like almost 20 years. Why? I mean, everybody knew that he had no clue. I mean, what was it? Uh, Gates? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert Gates? Robert Gates, who just said um, Joe Biden has been, been wrong, wrong about, about everything. every foreign policy decision. I mean, he was the only guy in the Obama administration who, when they said, hey, we think we found Osama bin Laden, we can kill him. <laughs> no, we shouldn't get him. No, man, I tell you, not sure that's on, the right man. idea. Yeah, Come on, man. Is that what we should do? And I think if the news had ever got out that the administration had actually found and had actionable intelligence on Osama bin Laden and they had said, don't do it, much like Bill Clinton did in the late 1990s. Well, I was about to bring that up, yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he got away with it because nothing, well, I, I guess the, the world trade center bombing wasn't, that was, uh, was it shake or, uh, Khalid, whatever his name is. Yeah. Khalid, Khalid, Khalid Sheikh Muhammad or whatever. Yeah. Was, yeah. That, was that who it was? I think that's right. Yeah, they're all called Khalid, Muhammad, Muhammad Khalid, and Sheikh. Ibn Nazir and whatever it's it's like me trying to it's like me trying to pr you know, pronounce French names. I right. I'm sorry. I La, La Follette? You are now Lefevre. <laughs> yeah, Lefevre. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I look at the, in Canada um, the the guy that runs the Conservative Party, Pierre. Oh God. Paul. Paul, Paul Polyevry, polyev, poly, I, I don't know. I, I can't pronounce it. I'm, I'm Pepperman. I'm an American. <laughs> Heck, yeah, I lived I, in I lived in the Netherlands for freaking three years, and I could barely speak Dutch at the end of it. <laughs> I didn't get much beyond, uh, you know. Yeah. How much is that? Where is the red light district? <laughs> Which reminds me, um, when I was over there, AFN, the American Armed Forces Network, used to have these things that, you know, is, you know, learn German. You know, wo ist der Bahnhof? Where <laughs> is the train station? And, you know, the, the problem with that is you're not going to learn off a, you know, 30-second PSA, one per day, how to speak German. And if you ever make the mistake of going up to a German and going, wo ist der Bahnhof? Ah, ja, ja. Uh, na links biegen. Uh, <laughs> gehen Sie immer, immer, immer geradeaus. <laughs> na der zweite Ampel, na rechts biegen. Und dann, <laughs> okay. Slower, please. Yeah, sorry. I, I have no idea what an ample is or what links are or what the heck biegen means. So... You just point... Thanks. Yeah. But anyways, anyway, I worked at the time um, as a volunteer broadcaster at the Canadian Forces Network at, at where I was stationed at Headquarters Allied Forces Central Europe in Brunson, the Netherlands. And so I made up this whole series of, um, you know, learn German and learn Dutch on CFNV. And my phrase is like... Um, uh, uh, die Tintenfisch hat die Katze gegessen. 
the octopus has eaten the cat. <laughs> so, so all of my phrases were just these outlandish things that, that clearly you could never lose. But it was it's just dirtier than the original Dutch. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was just making fun of the the stupid idea that you could you know learn a foreign language on listening to a PSA on AFN. Yeah, well, how do we get on this topic? I don't know. How do we get on any topic? <laughs> Random chance. Spin the wheel. That's what we need. We need a wheel. <laughs> um. By the way, a commenter in chat has mentioned this, and it did just happen because um, I got a long message today about how this does not affect us. However, it may affect some of our vendors, and so we may need to change payment information or whatever. Federal regulars just, just kited into Silicon Valley Bank and shut that bad boy down. Yeah, I saw that. I didn't even know it was stressed, uh, but apparently yeah, there apparently was neither did anybody else. Yeah, and it well, you know, oh, poor venture capitalists and Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's the biggest banking loss since the two thousand since two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which I can except that it's probably a sort of isolated case because it is a bit of a specialized bank. However, when you see the layoffs and other things that are going on in the tech industry um, and, and the big bigs too, I mean, uh, Meta, Alphabet, um, Microsoft, I mean, they've all been laying off a lot of people. I, uh, not IBM. Um, one of the other big ones just laid off a bunch of people or announced that they're going to lay off a bunch of people. Um, you start to wonder, has the appetite for new gadgets and apps and, and whatever else, uh, which seem to be almost solely based on entertainment now and not or communications and not on actual productivity? Um, has it run its course? Uh, has I, I don't want to call it a bubble, but is there any real value being added in that area anymore? Especially with limited resources. You know, we got the semiconductor stuff going on, um, which affects it tangentially. Uh, it's not a direct effect, but it does affect it if you're putting out these. Uh, you know, th these apps and uh, programs that use up a lot of space, you know? Well, the interesting thing about this is if I'm in the tech industry up in, you know, the San Francisco area and I'm looking for venture capital and investment and stuff like that. Yeah. That's probably my go-to guy. How much of my money has now evaporated? Uh, right. Oh, uh, by the way, Apropos of nothing, it turns out that the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank dumped uh, about three and a half million dollars worth of stock in the last two weeks. That may have been what triggered uh, the sell-off, <laughs> because this is that's what precipitated this takeover by the FDIC was that there was a drop in the in the share price of like sixty percent, uh, which of course triggers an automatic suspension of trading, but. 
um, yeah, I don't know. And that's what I don't know. I, I, it seemed like they had more assets than they did liabilities. Um, but it may be that those assets aren't producing. Um, and so those assets are turning into liabilities. So I, I, I don't know. I, I've not seen any of the real details yet. But uh, the fact that they kind of had a bank run um, put them in a really awful position. <laughs> and the owner, the Umbrella Corporation that owns it, uh, essentially, kind of. it seems like they sort of bailed and tried to get out while they could. I mean, extricate what they could personally. <laughs> yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Back. It's all going to get clawed back, but um, it's it's not a good thing. I don't know what signal that makes, though. I mean, it's you could interpret it so many different ways. It could be an isolated incident. It could be a symptom of, of something bigger coming. Um, well, it has certainly affected banking stocks in the sector as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, it would. Yeah. So, so there's at least some fear that this is a harbinger of some fundamental problem in the banking industry. Now, that could just be panic well, I, because it is the market. Well, I wonder how much of this is connected to FTX, too. Um, it, it doesn't seem obvious, but they run in the same spaces. When you're talking venture capital, I mean, you don't know where that money goes. It goes all over. It's spread as wide as possible. Right. Um if there were losses, if this bank or its its owner um, invested heavily in FTX to kind of hedge their bets, who knows? But, I mean, I don't know. You know, the, the the problem with this is not just the venture capitalists. I mean, that's what they do. They put their money at risk and presumably. Yeah, and thank they, God they do. They have enough money to do that. And occasionally right. you're going to get caught. However, you still have commercial banking customers there. Right, they're the ones who largely get largely they get, get screwed, screwed very badly. Yeah, over something like this, you know, I never thought I would say it, but I think maybe overturning Glass Steagall was a mistake. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the FDIC was actually a good program started by FDR. <laughs> no, I didn't say that, but I. I think maybe having that firewall between commercial banking and investment banking and preventing the consolidation of the banking industry, I think that may have been a not a bad idea. God, I hate to say it. I, I understand. I just wonder how much difference it would have made. I mean... Well, I mean... Oh, Look at it right now. If you don't bank at Bank of America, Wells Fargo, I mean, largely there are other banks, but, but, you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citibank, um, and there's maybe one or two others I could think of. Um, uh, uh, well, BMT is almost all insurance now. Um, Deutsche Bank, but that's really investment. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I'm just talking about commercial. I'm just talking about commercial banking, though. Yeah, TD Bank. Um, yeah, there's still a few. Scotia Bank actually is kind of big in at least in the east. It's a Canadian bank. Yeah, uh, but there's a lot fewer banks than there used to be, and you have oh, a yeah. lot, you have a lot fewer choices. And 
Well, during all the stress tests and stuff, a lot of those smaller banks, regional banks, got bought up by the bigger banks. I mean, Wells Fargo, um, I mean, bought Wachovia, which was yeah, its Wells, own big bank. Yeah, Wells Fargo alone came out of that pretty well. City bought yeah. uh, WAMU. Right. I mean, those are huge acquisitions and placed them all over the map. Um so yeah, though it's it's the the banking industry has definitely changed, and I for one am not big on consolidation. Uh, I, I find that to be. I understand that there are some good things that can come of it. Uh, and, and, you know, you 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 will see that, but I I'm absolutely aware of all the bad things that can come of it. I mean, we we saw that in the automotive industry, you know, before. Uh, the unionization, uh, like what's the act? Um, I guess the Labor Union Act um, was put in place. We had, I don't know, hundreds of different car companies. And, you know, many of them would fail, much like restaurants, right? They would fail every year. Some would get bought up. But, I mean, in, in our heyday, at the beginning of really the automotive revolution, we had at least 40 to 50 different uh, car companies doing all kinds of innovations and different stuff. And it was absolutely fascinating. And they were driving down the price of vehicles. And then we ended up with, uh, you know, unionization, um, government-backed uh, labor unions, and the big four. Yeah, All which of whom have had to be bailed out by which, the federal government, which became the big three. Yeah, which became the big three, right? I mean, it, it's and, and you see this every time there's consolidation, and that's I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of antitrust laws, um, but I gotta admit that there is there is uh, some justification there for why they'd be put in place. Um, you know, I hear people, and we've talked about this a bunch, about both our interest and trepidation about it with the uh, big tech, right? And yeah, because it seems it. insoluble, right? Because you know, let's go back to banking. Okay, I can have twenty banks in my town, and the trouble with that is that each one of those banks is probably financially more precarious than Wells Fargo. Overall, yeah. And therefore, they are much more prone to failure because of one you know, bad investment. Now, I think you eliminate some of that problem by putting the firewall up between, again, commercial and investment banking. You can be an investment bank. You can be a commercial bank. You can't be both. Because... One of the reasons why 2008 was so disastrous was because you had these banks that had investment arms and those investment arms made some bad calls and there was a lot of skullduggery going on with, you know, Moody's and Standard & Poor's yes. giving AAA ratings to what can only be charitably called shit. And the yeah, banks the then turning around and, and selling these things. And, you know, 
as as we now famously know from a couple of movies, once the 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 default rate hits 8%, that whole house of cards comes tumbling down. And yeah. when you are exposed on the long side for, you know, $115 billion, uh, you're not just taking down the investment bank, you're taking down the commercial bank as well. That's exactly what happened to WAMU. They just yeah. got destroyed. And, well, that's what happened to, what was the other, uh, not Bear Stearns. Um, uh, well, it did happen J. to Bear Stearns, but they're it not a commercial. But they're not a commercial bank, so we don't care. J.W. Morgan. Yes, J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan Chase. But there was enough of a space between J.P. Morgan and Chase Manhattan and Chase. Yeah. that Chase could survive and prosper. Um, that that firewall, as dumb as it seemed, and for years I thought it was dumb. And by the way, I'm one of the people who thought, hey, they're finally getting rid of Glass-Steagall, this, this stupid Depression-era relic. Maybe not. I mean, sure, banking would then go back to being super boring and just giving out home mortgages and business loans, I guess. And you wouldn't have the opportunity for, you know, day trading at Wells Fargo. But I'm not sure that's an entirely, not sure that's an entirely bad thing. And it would at least insulate the commercial sector from the failures <laughs> at investment banks. And by the way, I think it might eliminate the too big to fail problem. That's, I, well, again, that's the consolidation thing. I agree with you. The, it, the too big to fail thing is what... Uh, really caused our problems in 2007, 2008. I mean, it didn't cause, it, it um, exacerbated greatly. <laughs> the, 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 when we bailed them out and we have to, I'll never forget George Bush going in there and saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to have to, uh, you know, destroy capitalism to save it or something like that. And, and it was just like, what? Let them fail. Let the, oh, no, it's way too... Yeah, it's way too much for who? You know, it, I, I don't have $250,000 in a bank anywhere. By, by the way, we have a comment. We have a, someone in the comments. You're saying consolidation happens naturally or because government actions drive it, perhaps on behalf of the big players. Um, let's put a pin in that because that's an interesting discussion. And yeah. we'll come back to that. But speaking of the FDIC, um, which you clearly don't have a lot of respect for. Um, hey, you know, that's not true. I, 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 I think it's actually one of the few programs that came out of the New Deal era that has worked and has helped stab off um, banking panics. Um, okay, because my argument it was, it is that the way that we fixed 2008, uh, or the way that we should have fixed 2008, was to say, okay, well, we have a choice. We can give a shit ton of money to these banks, and we can socialize their losses. Right. Or we can put a shitload of money in the deposit. FDIC and make all the depositors whole. And by the way, we'll waive the $10,000 limit on accounts. Right. We'll make sure... Uh, no, two hundred fifty thousand was for savings and loans, for checking for cash accounts. I believe it's still oh, for checking in cash. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would have just said, look, we don't care how much money you have, you're getting it back, and yeah. paid paid it would have been way cheaper. 
it would have been cheaper to pay the depositors back. Now, when you lose those banks, what there's going to be some consolidation that goes on. Yeah, there's yeah, but there will also be some new banks that come up. Yeah, so I'm. It just Nothing seems... more fertile than a burned and slashed field. <laughs> no, that's true. But I, I think that would have been a better way of solving that crisis than because basically what we told all these big banks is that if you make bad bets on the economy and and by the way, government had plenty of hand in this. We can go back over yes. um, how the government basically incentivized in every way these banks to give out as many mortgages as possible and forget, you know, turn on the tap, forget credit worthiness. You just loan the money because after all, everyone deserves to buy a home, just like everyone deserves to go to college. Both of those two things, clearly false. But that was, our government pushed that way. But then to solve it, what we told the banks was, okay, we know that you were creating these huge derivative markets based on assets that you knew were full of B and triple B and triple C crap that yeah. you were calling triple A. And that you were not only selling these directly, but you were creating derivative instruments based on those to magnify the agencies have never suffered anything. No, nobody went to jail. Nobody did anything. And what we told them was, okay, you've done you've done a bad thing. And we don't wanna, but we're gonna pay you for it. But you gotta promise us you'll never do this again. But if you, but if you do, <laughs> then we'll probably do the same thing because you're too big to fail. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And too, and, and too that's big exactly to what keeps happening. And too big to fail is single point of failure. Well, that's right. I hate to go back to chaos theory, even though I, I love it, <laughs> but it, that's, that's chaos theory in a nutshell. The fewer points of failure you have, the more chaos is introduced to the system. So when you had that one point of failure, you get hurricanes from a butterfly's wings. I mean, that's just how it works. You need to have a lot more diversity. Hey, there's that word. We don't use it this way anymore. But you have a lot more diversity in choice for consumers than you have... Uh, many, many, many uh, points of possible failure, and literally some of them will fail. Well, see, that's, that, that's, that's okay that's because the, there's so much competition; it doesn't matter. Yeah, see, that's the trade-off you make. Either we consolidate everything, like, and by the way, so much of business in this country is consolidated. Whether yeah. it is you know, radio broadcasting, Spectrum, Infinity, uh, Clear Channel, and Clear Channel. There you go. That's it. <laughs> Those are your three radio companies. That's it. Doesn't matter that you have a hundred radio stations in your city. They're probably all broadcasting from the same clear channel facility somewhere downtown. Yeah. Um, so your problem is, okay, if we have that system, if one of these things fails, it can take the whole kit and caboodle down with it. Now, the chances of that failure tend to be much smaller. True. Yeah. And there'll be a longer mean time between failures, to bring in an engineering term. So your MBTF hopefully. is much longer, <laughs> hopefully. On the other hand, if you have you know 30 or 40 
banks in this case, 50 banks. Okay, one of them is going to go under on a fairly regular basis. And so there will not be this long period of stability and then a god-awful, horrific uh, apocalypse of catastrophe that will last two or three years. What there will be are these little minor catastrophes every year. So what what do you want to live with? And at this point, based on what the cost of a major catastrophe could be, I think I'm much happier living with small, minor catastrophes. Minor contagion is always better than major contagion. And But see, now we're back to regulation. Now we're back to the government. The same people who oversaw the banking crisis of that. 2008 <laughs> being the ones who say, okay, well, we'll look over, you know, all of these 50, 60, 100 banks and we'll make sure that that, you know, we'll, we'll regulate the hell out of them. Will you? Just like they did, uh, uh, what's his face? Um, who's the guy that that like ripped off all those rich people in new york uh bernie madoff yeah bernie madoff was like first name basis for all the sec regulators and like oh that was all good don't worry about it like okay good bernie we love you and then of course the inevitable pyramid collapses well that's how how pyramid schemes work i'm surprised people still are you know, I still get occasional calls from this person or that person that I knew five years ago. Have you heard of Amway? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, at bottom, though, this is almost always, I can only think of one example off the top of that. This is almost always a government, if not driven, at least exacerbated Which gets us back to the question that was asked by our listener. Yes, this is almost always caused by government action. And, you know, we we talk about this all the time, regulatory capture. Yes. The second that you set up a regulator for an industry, the clock is ticking for the moment when that industry takes over that regulator. Right. And so what you end up with, as we've probably mentioned thousands of times, the Secretary of the Treasury is always a former or future executive at Goldman Sachs. Often both. Uh, And then also sometimes a former senator and a uh, governor of New Jersey. (laughs) Um, What I, I think the big signal about this is when you hear these companies especially the larger companies who are being regulated begging for new regulations no this act or this bill you know what regulate us we think you're right we should be controlled you you should be in charge of us i don't even trust myself right (laughs) and it's almost always a regulation that raises a barrier to entry to competition exactly that's that's what they want you know, right here in my home state. So, and I pointed this out to my son, uh, one of my sons. Um, the Dominion Power is basically the provider of power to pretty much all of at least Eastern Virginia, um, and and certainly Northern Virginia. Uh, there's some bill in Congress to. Uh, or in the the in the Virginia legislature to 
put some more regulations on Dominion uh, that will reduce rates and it'll save Virginian uh, uh, consumers $350 million. That's uh, like, I can't remember what they said. It was something like six or seven dollars a month on, on your bills or whatever. Okay. okay. And then this whole thing was paid for by Dominion Energy. So it's like, and so I, I kind of quizzed him. I was like, well, so what do you think of that? I was like, well, some of those numbers sound a little weird. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, why did Dominion pay for that? Like, well, maybe, you know, they just think it's a good idea. I was like, no, no, no. Either there's a worse bill in place that's going to completely uh, not let them charge more or, or or make them charge less, or they're trying to keep some competition out. I mean, the, 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 they're, when they're paying money for advertising a bill that's going to cost them money, they're doing it for a reason. <laughs> they're trying to minimize a loss or maximize a gain. That's the only two reasons. And again, it's just whenever I hear a company begging for regulation or, or encouraging people to vote more regulation of their industry, I'm like, yeah, you're in bed with somebody. There's something else here going on. I don't know what it is, but there's something going on. Yeah, because I don't trust in that level of altruism from corporations. No, there isn't. That, that that doesn't exist. They're in the business of making money, and I want them to make money. Now, I want them to make as little money off me as possible, sure. But they provide me power. You know, I want to make the, them to make their savings outside of me so they can charge me less. <laughs> I don't want them to come up with some rate structure that now, oh, you're going to get 6 or $7 less a month. Am I, though? I mean, is that really what's going to happen? Well, again, we, most of the time, this, I don't think it's universally true, but most of the time, when you're talking about power companies, you're already talking about heavily regulated industries. Super regulated. And, and you're, my you're generally talking... You're generally talking about not only regulated companies, but regulated monopolies. Well, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So competition isn't necessarily the right thing. So my only thinking here is that there is another bill, competing bill, that would not allow them to charge or would reduce their flexibility or would... Um, um, somehow impede their ability to raise rates when necessary or something. I mean, it, there's something that they're actually after. And it's not to, like, lower their rates. You don't pay money to lower your rates. You just lower your rates. Yeah, if that was all, the, if that was the only problem, you could just do that unilaterally. You don't need anybody to handcuff you down to do that. <laughs> mm. All right, well... Um, what else did I want to talk about today? I can't even, I can't even think about what I had on my mind. Uh, I know that we talked about it last week and, or, or actually we didn't talk about it last week. We, we spent two hours talking about it after we got off the podcast, um, which is, and I think it's a fascinating story. It is largely humorous and we don't know how it's going to turn out, but it's this high school teacher in Canada who was 
a shop oh. teacher wearing the size Z fake <laughs> breasts and going to school. And he just said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a woman now. And everybody just said, OK, well, I guess you can wear your size Z fake breasts to school and work in the shop. I Nothing we can do about it. That's your that's your true identity. Well, as it turns out, this guy is only wearing these fake breasts and is only masquerading as a woman. And I use the term masquerading intentionally because this is all a work. Yeah, because when yeah. he's when he's not at school, he's just walking around in a sweater and, a you know, uh, 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 and it is masquerade because it, a golf shirt. Everything is overemphasized. <laughs> and so, last week, what they told him was, "Okay, we're going to suspend you because you're not really a woman. You're 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 fake. You're a faker." Which, okay, that's fine because you know it's actually true. He is. However, who are they to say that? Right. They made the rules because the rule is, yeah, the rule is if you tell us that you identify as a woman, then we have to treat you as a woman. And there certainly can't be, yeah, and there certainly can't be any negative employment consequences or anything like that. You're a woman. We have to accommodate you as a woman and treat you as a woman. We can't dead name you. We can't misgender you because this is how you feel. Okay. So now who are you to tell me how I feel? So the fact that I do want to come to school this way, and by the way, uh, and, and there were some people who picked up on this a long time ago. This is not a kink or a fetish. This guy's trying to make a point. Yes. And now they're upset. They're, yeah, they're upset at his point, and they you know are going to suspend him and do all of this stuff. But again, his I think argument. That's the only reason he was actually suspended is because they figured out finally. Yeah, finally after a year. Um, yeah. But again. It seems to me his argument in defense is, who are they to say right. what I truly feel? And this maybe, is Canadian law. Yeah, maybe I'm gender fluid. Maybe sometime I feel like a man and sometime I feel like a woman. And you know what? It's none, feel of, like a nut and sometimes I don't. it's none of their damn business. And the problem is that the arguments that they've used to actually impose this 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 policy is all based on you. How do you feel? About it's this. all subjective feeling. That's correct. Yeah, and it's the subjective feeling of the person who tells them, I feel this way. So now they want to come back and rewrite the rules and say, no, 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 no. We don't think you're being authentic in your, well, you don't have access. You don't get to judge that. That's you don't not get to judge that. Judge. You have no access to my inner life. You, don't fact, know what you can't even define what a woman is. So how can you say I'm not a woman? Unless you have something to compare it to. Yeah, what, what is the objective no standard? Rubric. And I, I, frankly, I think the guy is brilliant. Now, I think he's going to get, I think he's going to get fired. I, I think he's going to lose his job at the school. Um, yeah. But pointing, risk. <laughs> but pointing out this type of hypocrisy is not without its utility. Absolutely. Matter of fact, it's highly favored uh, from those of us who care to live in reality and not this fantasy world that far too many people are happy to live in, even though it's unlivable. You can't live in it. It doesn't even make any sense. 
you now have got just as another example you have and they've been pushing this for a while but you've got these uh trans right activists saying that you know if you don't want to sleep with somebody who has different genitals than you're normally used to well you're transphobic oh yeah that's the that's, no. that's the new thing you're transphobic if you won't date a trans woman yeah no no sorry that's just not that's not true i mean you're not supposed to say that um but I don't, yeah i don't think so <laughs> yeah i'm i'm sorry you you have a dick that's just not gonna work for me i already got one yeah, i need the opposite I know, part <laughs> yeah i know how those work i'm you know real real up on that i i, I don't need to have more experience with it yeah that's just mm. Yeah. Not, well, you know, there was an interesting article this week, and I, I wish I'd have kept the link. It's by a black professor who starts off. Basically, the the article can be condensed in about three sentences. I'm a black guy. I'm a black studies professor. I firmly believe in this white privilege stuff and and all the racism stuff, and I'm perfectly happy with the 1619 stuff. I have been doing stuff about black studies for 20 years and now these woke students that are coming into my class are freaking nuts mm -hmm. yeah again sort of it's this dis red pills and quarter red pills yeah it's this but this disconnection from reality it can't well can't, of course it can't go it on it can't go on i mean what what is it uh rudyard kipling uh, you know, the copybook, the headings. gods of the copybook headings. Right. I mean, eventually it all comes uh, uh, to roost. I mean, you can only deny reality for so long and denying reality does not create a new reality. It just furthers a fantasy. It, it, it just creates an unreal world. And when you expect others to abide, by, well, they're not going to. I mean, some will. Some will do so willingly. And some will pretend to do so just to, you know, avoid yeah, trouble. Go along, get along. Sure. But eventually, and this is the way the left always works, is they, they push too far. They sense no resistance, so they keep pushing. And then all of a sudden they hit bedrock. And it's like, well, now you're just all bigots. And it's like, okay, well, then we're all bigots. <laughs> now we're going to push back. <laughs> but the weird thing is that sometimes I don't even realize how much they're beclowning themselves. When like today, uh, in Florida, Nikki Freed. Oh my God, that idiot! <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> she did an idiot. She did kind of a bad thing. So, uh, she was talking about all these 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 very necessary books for children that Ron DeSantis is taking yeah, out. Yeah, of child school. porn. I get it. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and Ron DeSantis um, posted. Uh, on a video, a page of this book that was actually in a middle school library, yep. which basically gave step-by-step -step instructions on how to prepare yourself for anal sex using a butt plug and all this other stuff. And she took a screenshot of one of those images and said, so is the governor just... Um, uh, just just posting porn now oh okay you're you're admitting it's porn then 
So this pornography. Does the elevator not let's like <laughs> yeah. skip some floors yeah. there? So if this is indeed pornography, why do you want it in our schools? Obviously, if, if, if it is so bad that we can't post it on Twitter, uh, and or on national TV or on national TV, then why are kids looking at it? Yeah. How this isn't a difficult concept. I mean, this is actually a really simple concept. You know, even Potter Stewart said, you know, well, you might not be able to define pornography, but I know it when I see I know it. it when I see it. <laughs> and this is clearly pornography. I mean, and that's what I thought was so brilliant about uh, uh, DeSantis's uh, press conference. You know, they're talk he, he keeps taking all these heat. Well, they're banning books and they're they're hating on trans people. It's like, okay, here we're going to show you. Oh, you can't show this on TV. Oh, matter of fact, the FCC will come down on you if you actually. The FCC oh. will fine you thousands yeah. and thousands of dollars if you. But broadcast. you're okay with people having this in kindergarten first grade second grade third grade classes this is porn we're just trying to keep porn out of the schools that's all it is doesn't matter what kind of porn this could have been teaching you how to you know fondle a breast when you're like six years old well, you know i see this all the time on social media um you know the Republicans are only going on this trans thing because they're trying to push an agenda because Trump lost. No, they're yeah. Why weren't the why weren't the Republicans worried about trans stuff 10, 15 years ago? Um, because nobody was. Yeah, because a nobody was, and b you weren't trying to have drag shows in front of children, right? Um, I, I don't. Mean, I don't really care do what I don't care I, what fuckery you get up to as a consenting adult. Exactly. Once you start pulling kids kid. in, I now I begin to care a lot. Yeah, and and that's always been the rule. Keep it to yourself. Fine. I do not give two shits if you. I've met lots, not lots, but I've met some trans people, or at least as we used to call them, trannies. You know, dressing, and they were always. Uh, men dressing up to be women. Fine. I, Hell, I like Milton Berle did it on national TV in the 1950s. But Wilson made a fucking career out of this. <laughs> <laughs> and look, you could have gone down to Bourbon Street, New Orleans, anytime in the late 60s oh and early 70s. And indeed... Well, you don't take kids there either. <laughs> um, most parents probably wouldn't. In 1973, my parents did. Um... You're an exceptional kid. Yeah, I must have been. And how about my stepsister, who is two years younger? Um, um, and I learned at that tender young age, oh, there are men who dress up as women and dance on stages on Bourbon Street. Huh. Okay. Clearly inappropriate for my parents to have taken me there. And yet, that's a discussion where you are. That's a discussion and I should have with my family. However, the fact is, it was right there on Bourbon Street. Everybody knew it was there. And you would just go get your strawberry hurricanes and you'd sit there and you would watch the transsexuals on stage in the bar. And no one cared. This is, by the way, Louisiana. 
I mean, if there's any place that's part of the Bible Belt, it's Louisiana. Now, granted, New Orleans is a bit bit of an exception to that. (laughs) New Orleans has always been a relatively wild town anyway. But yeah, you're right. This stuff has been around a long time. And you're right. Nobody gave a shit about it 10 years ago. No. And the only reason they give a shit. a woman in your bathroom as a guy, you were like, oh, it's training, whatever. Okay, yeah. Uh, in fact, there is a guy that that hangs out in Balboa Park here in San Diego. Um, he's there almost every day wearing a dress, low pumps, uh, a wig, full makeup. Does he have a wide stance? Um, I presume that he does. Um, okay, yeah, who cares? I mean, literally, yeah, exactly. who cares? But then... Once you start saying, okay, well, how about a family-friendly drag show? Okay, well, I don't believe that there is any such thing. And how about a family-friendly stripper show? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's have a uh, family-friendly stripper show with, um, you know, Eastern European starlets coming over and, like, shaking it in space. Yeah, I don't want kids there either. There's a lot of things that I don't want kids to do um right. when they turn 18 i cease to care what it is that they I mean, wasn't tipper gore at the like the forefront of uh the ratings system oh yeah boy that that brings back some memories back into the early 90s when tipper gore early 80s or, or, or 80s actually yeah because d snyder from d. twisted snyder sister had to go to congress yeah. and uh, she was, you know, saying, you know, this rock music. Um, and, of course, that was the time of the satanic panic and all of that. <laughs> you did well. love Satan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, play the records backwards. Um, Who does that? <laughs> yeah, you know, at some point you're just looking for something. <laughs> now, you're just, now you're just making shit up to be upset about. Um and the you know the weird thing about that is that they went after groups like Black Sabbath. Now, okay, I understand the Black Sabbath name um, might have some a bit of a clue. satanic <laughs> conversations. But have you ever actually listened to the lyrics of those songs? Right. I mean, there's a fair amount of Christianity that gets shoehorned into Black Sabbath's music. Well, in order to justify their existence, it would have to, because otherwise, (laughs) who are you? (laughs) You can't exist light without dark, evil without good. Yeah, but their music is basically largely on the side of good. I mean, Ozzy Osbourne was, you know, blitzed out of his mind for most of that time. But I don't think he wrote most of the songs anyway, but he was just the front man. But. Yeah, we, we, we care because kids are involved. Judas Priest. Yeah. Don't but don't mess with kids and we won't be And that's literally And that we'll is, we'll go we can go back to not caring. You know this what? This is an age old rule. This is like this is not something new. This is something that has I mean, to the point where it's probably passed down genetically, that you don't fuck with our kids. Period. You can do lots of stuff and, you know, some people might care. We've gotten to a really good point, I thought, in the past 30 years or so where we're like, 
A lot of people are just like, I, yeah, I don't care. Do what you want. It's all didn't hurt me. And now it's like, oh, no, no, no. You have to care. And your kids have to care. Matter of fact, you're teaching them wrong. Bake the we cake. We teach you how to teach them so that we're more acceptable. Like, well, you're, you're a freak. <laughs> so just get used to it. Well, the problem is, and this is, by the way, the problem with any activist, right? You, you're whatever it is that you're an activist about. That that problem can never be solved, ever. Exactly, right. And if it looks like you're, it's being solved, then you just have to escalate it and move to a next level. Well, you don't want to work yourself out of a job. Exactly. So you know, we're just asking for tolerance. Okay. No, you're not. <laughs> okay. Here you go. You got tolerance. Well, we're asking for acceptance. I would say okay. from, from the nineties, okay. we'll to accept the, you. Well, that's where I, th I think from the nineties to the late two thousands was probably the most socially acceptable period of America, at least, um, ever. That nobody gave a shit if you were interracial marriage or. Yes, but see, not giving a shit is no longer enough. That's just it. I need, my, I need toleration, and, and then when I get that, I get acceptance, and then when I get that, I need celebration. Now I need you as an active participant. Yeah. Well, Otherwise, well, you're a hater. Well, okay, I'm a hater. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's not even enough. And by the way, we're not even being specific about trans or whatever. No, it's um, it, that's right because it's it, everything. It's a whole. And it's it's everything. the same playbook every single time. And now, and so, and, and, people are getting done done with it. They're, they're just tired of being forced to care. You know, we only have so much capacity within each and every day to give a shit about anything. We give a shit about our job because, well, we kind of have to. Yeah, we got to keep a roof um, over our head. We got to keep food on the table. So and that's, the reason we give a shit about our job is because the most important thing is we give a shit about our families. Oh, we give a shit about eating. Uh, we give a shit about like you know having things like lights and heat and uh, hopefully a little bit of entertainment. We can have a TV, a phone. I mean, these are our priorities. You want to do you and hang out and do freaky stuff? You know what? You go for it, man. That's awesome. But it doesn't mean that I have to be involved in it. No. It doesn't mean that I, you know, why do you need my, not, right. not my tacit acceptance, not my tolerance. Why do you need me to affirm accept it? You. Your problem is you can't accept you. Accept you just like I've accepted me. I don't need anybody else's approval. Why do you need anybody else's approval? I don't give two shits what people tell me about how I live my life. Because... Yeah, it, it's, I made these informed decisions to do it the way I want to do it. Yeah, it's it's my life. It's not your life. It doesn't affect you, right? So, fuck off. Go do your own thing. You know what? I might even celebrate some little thing with you, just because I like you. You know, uh, I've been to a uh, a same sex marriage before, uh, and I've been to same sex. Um, uh, you know, anniversaries and, you know, like big anniversaries and stuff. I mean, I don't agree with, with same sex marriage, but they do their thing. doesn't affect me. doesn't hurt me at all. So I'll celebrate with them. I don't care. doesn't bother me. 
But if you forced me to do it, if I'm forced to do it, oh. bake the cake, bigot. Yeah, right. It's like I always tell my wife, it's like, I don't know why you try to control me. I can't even control myself. So I'm like, just, just stop. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty common. Um, but that seems to be this, this, this paradigm we're in. And what's really interesting is how much of this attitude really does seem to infect sort of the Generation Z people. You know, it, it, I think it's a little bit more. I mean, you're right that it does. Now, see, I've got three Generation Z kids, and they're not affected by it at all. And well, first of all, they don't send them to public school. Second of all, true. Yeah. Uh, and um, second of all, uh, none of them have gone through their full college experience yet. Well, my son, my oldest, is uh, ending his sophomore year, and he's on his way to getting his MBA in five years. I mean, and he chose a good school. My younger son is going to be a senior next year. He's definitely a little more crazy. I mean, but my kids are, and again, that's parental influence. Um yeah, just look at the Catholic number school. of just look at the number of kids who are born out of wedlock now. Exactly. Yeah, no, they have a stable influence. They see a family unit as the best way to have a family and be a family. Um, their friends are almost not all of them, but almost all of them have uh, you know mother and father of the kid live together, are married. You know, that kind of thing. It, it makes a huge difference. And I mean, Thomas Sold, I mean, hell, Milton Friedman was, was saying this literally decades ago. Uh, you know, graduate high school, get married, then have kids. It's not an automatic recipe for success, but there's a lot less chance of failure if you can do those three things. And it's proven true and over and over again. Well, you know, it's the Larry Elder mantra still today. Don't quit school. Get a job. Don't leave that job until you have another job. Exactly. And get married. And Early. don't have kids until after you're married. Exactly. Yeah, none of this having kids before you get married. Again, this is not a... This is not a uh, you know, foolproof thing, obviously. No, absolutely not. Life can throw at you, but. And how successful you can be afterwards. But if you at least try to live by the precepts or, you know, the underlying ethos of it, you're going to have a much more successful life. You're going to have much more successful kids than people who just completely eschew that. And by the way, this, this, always, this always gets painted as being some sort of religious thing. It, it, it's not. I mean, it's it, literally it be. based on statistics. Yeah, but it's it's literally how the world works. Right. And if you decide to live a lifestyle that, you know, does all of the things that tends to make you unsuccessful, then don't how be too many surprised if you're unsuccessful. How together before they get married? I mean, that's pretty common. Have sex before they get married? Very common. That was not common you know, 50, 60 years ago. 
60 years ago. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's, it's fairly common now. Okay. But you can still, you have the ability to put off having kids outside of abortion that will give you a chance to figure out if you're compatible. And I think that's a great thing. I think that's wonderful that people take time to figure out, hey, can we do this long term? Well, the problem is, I think that it has become so pervasive in our society. Uh, I think there was a point somewhere around, if you go back to the late 1960s, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was talking about uh, the rates of illegitimacy in the black community. Wrote an entire report about it that nobody's yeah. ever seen. Wrote an entire report about it. He was a Democrat, by the way, just in case anybody wanted to know. Uh, a Northern Democrat. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the problem was that at the at that time, the black rate of illegitimacy was approaching 70%, which seemed like a really bad thing, especially since the rate of black illegitimacy literally a generation previous was like a, a 25%. Uh, if that, yeah, yeah. It, it, so there was just... fact, a generation, generation and a half before that, the illegitimate births to uh, the black cohort was actually less than to the white co cohort. Yes, that's exactly right. That that's true. I don't think it was a generation earlier, but I think it was like thirty, about a generation, forty half, or fifty years. Yeah. Um, so that was in the late sixties. Well, guess what? The 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 the. Uh, and of course, everybody just saw that as being, you know, you're just denigrating black people because they're obviously being discriminated against. It's difficult for them to raise a family. If it was that difficult for white people, they'd have similar rates of illegitimacy. Well, guess what? Now they do. Yes. Uh, and so the rate of illegitimacy among whites uh, has now topped 50%. Yep. Um, and what you end up with. And not with, just here either. It oh, not just here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's everywhere. Um yep. And the or everywhere in the West, I should say. Um, and what you're ending up with, and this is one of the things, and again, when we talk about these things, there's a bell curve. And there's obviously, you know, those outliers on the bell curve that are different. But in the real middle of the bell curve, what you have now is a generation, and we're rapidly approaching a second generation, who really have no experience with what we'd consider traditional nuclear family life. Yeah. And I'm not sure that they're capable of building it. Um, there is this guy, I think we've talked about him before, this Canadian guy who brings women onto his podcast, uh, usually, you know, young women, and he starts asking them questions about dating. And one of the questions that he asks... the whatever.com guy? Yeah, it's the whatever.com guy. Yeah. And yeah. one of the questions he... He's very, very smart and actually a, a very... How should I say it? He, he's a very adept interviewer in the way he gets these people to talk without offending them. He, and he never takes any offense. Yeah, he's um, a very. He's but, he, a very but he does push back. Yeah, he's but he's a pretty low key guy. But he always has. Very low key. He yeah. always has a question that he asks them: Is if you're in a relationship with a guy, um, and he told you that he didn't want you to go out with your single girlfriends and party on Friday and Saturday nights. What would you do? Well, he doesn't have the right to tell me that. Okay, that's not... We, we, we all understand he doesn't have the right to tell you that. 
That's that's understood. Um, what we're getting at is, do you understand the inherent responsibilities that come with maintaining a relationship? Well, no, they don't. And why would they? They've never seen, well, it, in well, many cases, they've never seen a functioning relationship. Why would no, they know? That's right. Why would they know how to create one for themselves? Well, and the other thing is they don't, my other favorite question they always brings up is like, well, what do you bring to the table? Myself. Myself. Yeah. Okay. Other than that, what else do you have? Yeah. And by the way, the, the monumental amount of arrogance. I yeah. expect my boyfriend to provide for me financially. I expect right. him to protect me. I expect him to, you know, take care of me, you know, physically in terms of food and shelter and physical protection. Okay, great. What does he get in return? Well, me? me? Of course. I'm the prize. As if there's not a new crop of 18-year-olds coming onto the market exactly every day. Right. <laughs> and the thing is, they don't even see how they're setting themselves up. They don't even understand how you're making yourself an ice cream flavor. <laughs> That's all you are. You're, you're an ice cream flavor. You're not a person. And and by the way, they always get offended at conversations when he turns to body count. They oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They hate I it. I love those. Why does that matter? So have you seen Pearl? Uh, okay, so what am I getting from you? I'm getting somebody who has been used by 16, 17, 30, right. 40 guys. How... Why, why, why do you think that you're such a prize? Um, is it because you think you're hot? And oh, the number of girls that think they're hot on this. Oh, I know. Is uh, they have this one? Uh, she's a, a dark-haired girl. She's—I I just call her Bangs because uh, she has these. I know exactly who you're talking. Dark bangs. Now she and is she's got this whiny. And she's got this whiny voice. Yes, I know exactly who you're talking. And, about. But she's completely delusional. Yeah, she's completely delusional. And by the way, you say you think she's sexy. Okay. We disagree because as yeah. far as I can tell, she's halfway to Italian mother-in-law and she's only 21. <laughs> and, you know, she thinks that she's a 10. No, in, in no, no world, not go that far. in no she, world are you a 10. Sexy about her, but it, it, it's her narcissism is. It's the, narcissism. It's, it's a huge turn off. Yeah, we've built a generation of narcissists. And by the way, guys are no better because guys are animals. And so if these girls are willing to have sex with them, and by the way, they don't even understand that they're the ones who control access to sex. They say, well, these guys have sex all the time. Yeah, yeah who's letting them? Um, right. Yeah, it, it's not happening, you know, just by strikes of lightning. Right. Um, you're allowing them to have access to sex. And they're all sleeping with the same 20% of guys. Yeah, that's the thing. Because they've all decided, I'm the prize. And so I deserve a six-foot, six-to-seven-figure fella um, right. who will take care of oh, me. Oh, God, do you hear them? Have you heard them talk about, like, well, what's, like, what should be the, the average, um, you know, salary? 250000 Okay, if a guy is making $250,000 a year... He doesn't need you. And that's the thing. I'm bringing me to the table. No, no, no. I'm making a quarter mil a year. Yeah. You're going to need to... me to the table. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah I'm, I'm the one who's the prize at this table. 
exactly. you're in competition with everyone yes. else who wants a piece of that. Right. And if you're just, you know, normal college dropout 21 year old who's kind of cute you're not in the running sweetie I, but I dance at, at the club on weekends and you know i have lots of friends and i go to free parties yeah and by the, by the way give a shit about that shit by the way life is unfair and life is awful yeah. and so a, a man at 40 who is established in his career and who oh, is doing fine. And by the way, he doesn't even have to be a rich guy. He could just be a welder at 40 who's well-established in his career. You know he's what? He's got money. He's, he's a catch because he Absolutely. has established himself. Yeah. Um, he probably and, owns several properties. And by the, a lot on several others. <laughs> and, and by the way, the, the, the fact that you're young and hot is, is not an asset. No, because I mean, it's a fleeting. It's only it an asset. A perishable good. <laughs> yeah, it's only an asset. What is, uh, is it? Dave Chappelle, right? <laughs> when he says, pussy appreciates like cars, not houses. <laughs> the whole point of being a young woman, it seems to me, should be to find a decent man, one who will treat you well, <laughs> and one who will respect you and to build a life with that man, because it's going to be a heck of a lot harder to wake up at 35 alone and then say, I have no relationship, nothing. Um, how do I get that? Well, you should have been working on that a lot earlier. And look, women are under a, a lot more pressure, not externally, actually internally to kind of get that shit figured out quickly. Um, they try to get their lives figured out pretty damn early. And I respect that and I understand it. Uh, they may not think of it in these terms, but they've only got so many fertile years. And Yeah, TikTok, need, TikTok. Yeah, and they, they need to know that not only can they be taken care of in times of um, stress or, or debilitation or whatever, uh, typically pregnancy, that they can depend on that person to be around even as they get older and fatter. And but, that requires a connection. Yeah. So, and by the way, men are of that age are no better because no. they have now been conditioned to see women as purely sexual objects. And why shouldn't they? Because that's how they present themselves. That's how they present themselves. And so it then just becomes this thing to, you know, run up the numbers on whoever they can get. And any girl that'll let them sleep with them, they will. And yeah. they don't have the maturity either. So I do understand, in part, women's complaint men their age are probably not good catches. Sadly, no. Twenty-one-year-old men tend not to be good catches anyway. No. At least, well, they did, you know, a, a while ago. I, I mean, oh yeah, I mean, sure. Back in the days when you were twelve and you owned your own farm in Virginia, uh, and you were dead by forty, yeah, there were a lot more. I'm thinking of my parents. My dad was 
20 and my mom was 21 when they got married and you know i was born six months to the day later we're not going to talk about that but (laughs) i mean there was something to like you said you know being a gatekeeper for the women like yeah i'll let you in but are you gonna love me Love me forever, do you need me? Will you never leave me? Will you make me so happy for the rest of your life? Will you take me away? Will you make me a wife? I gotta know right now. <laughs> yeah, let me think on it. Um, the There does seem to have been, in earlier generations, and which I would include mine, the this idea that, okay, this is a... Yeah, this is a partnership or or a relationship, especially one, if you want to build a life, you have to look for a partnership and there's going to be a lot of give and take, but you're going to be better off in this partnership with one person than you will be going through. And look, every guy goes through the string of women, period, at, at some point, or at least wanting to go through. Not every guy is capable of doing it, but at least wanting to go through the string of women, period. But at the end of the day... Um, there was there was an understanding, certainly in, in and I'm what a half a generation off from you. I, I think my parents were baby boomers, so I'm I'm the very first of the generation. Actually, you're like five years older than me. Not even five. Hmm. Yeah. Do you you don't turn sixty this year, do you? No. No, I don't. Yeah, so you're like four years older. No, okay. I fifty-five this year. Okay, well, we're. We, I guess we are the same generation. Yeah, we are pretty close in age. That's, you're like right at the very, just by how they do the cutoff. You're at the end of the baby boomer. Yeah, generation. technically, because I was born in sixty-four, that makes me a baby boomer. However, yeah. since my parents were actual baby boomers, born in nineteen forty-six right. and forty-eight, that really makes me not a baby boomer. They were the first of the baby boomers. Right. Um, well, when Grandpa got home from the Second World War, hey. he had a lot of pent-up <laughs> demand. Let's just put it that way, to put it in economic terms. Uh, all those <laughs> those four years on that ship really took a toll. Um, so, expect it does. But but in, but I think we had the understanding that to build a successful life, you really need to find some. There are building blocks you have to do. Yeah. And. Those haven't ever changed. I mean, and that's the thing is this is not some ideological construct. We know this over literally thousands, thousands of, of years, years of civilization. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 we're not inventing something new here. This we have known for literally thousands of years. But it, it, why it, not use that knowledge? But increasingly seems like it's lost knowledge. Well, you know, it's it's funny because you brought up Gen Z and I brought up my kids. I don't think my kids are as anomalous as it might seem just because they go to private school and whatever. Um, I keep seeing signs that... They're anomalous because they come from a stable two-parent family. Anomalous in that way, sure. Um, but I, I do see the attitudes drifting. So there's that... Um, I'm sure you've seen something about it. I, I'm remembering, I, I'm misremembering, I'm, I'm not remembering the name of it. It's like Asbury movement or something like that. 
uh, about movement towards Christianity, there's like this sort of um, organic revival toward a sort of thing that's been spreading across high schools and colleges. And I think mostly in the, in the Midwest, um, not out of Asbury Park, as I supposedly, as, as I assumed. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. I'll, I'll, so, although yeah. I'm far more, I'm far more on the secular side than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so apparently this is like a big deal um, amongst Gen Zs. And I see it with my kids. Um, I see it with their friends. And again, you're right. I mean, I'm in a little bit of a, you know, cocoon in that way. But not entirely. Uh, I think Gen Z is kind of going to be a little bit of a, a, and some will say an overreaction, but I think a reaction to um, how secular everything has gotten. Um, they're finding some solace and guidance in religion because the other modes and offerings of guidance are not doing them any good and they don't like them well the the problem with um and and being secular myself um which is uh you know a nice way of basically saying atheist uh but being a secular person myself i am not immune to the knowledge that Secularism does in many ways offer very little metaphysical support. Right. Now, I'm not saying that I would prefer religion because there is this built-in metaphysical structure to it that offers you some sort of hope and promise of an afterlife when secularism says, you know, the whole point of you being here is to do good while you're here. And then when you're gone, you're gone forever. I, I believe that that's true, but it's not something in which I can find much comfort. I think Nor secular motivation. Yeah. And I think secularism misses out on the, the, the idea that there is a fundamental need in human beings for meaning and to be able to find meaning and often and connection between generations. I think that's the other thing. And to find meaning in something larger than themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And I think where most people, whether they're religious or not, uh, tend to find it in legacy, in a connection to their families, um, and in furthering the family line and the family, you know, traditions or whatever. Uh, there's something about family, I think, that religious or not tends to create better behavior and more responsible behavior and to raise um, more responsible kids um, and to be more responsible humans. Now, and that's totally outside religion. Well, I, religion I, I, gives it a, a central focus and gives it some guidance. I, and, I, I, I think that's largely true. I mean, there are always the the edge cases where, you know, dad beats sure. up on mom and dad gets drunk. 
There's um, edge cases where somebody yeah. takes religion and turns it into a suicide compact and like kills a bunch of people. Yeah, so, because like, the comet is coming, and so what, what? Obviously, you have to kill yourself. Um, the and that's always the the argument that comes back from the the secular side, which is well, you know, the family isn't all roses and and all you know fluffy cooties, kitties. That's the beauty of it. There are, are there you are, kidding me? There are Some awful of my families. Best memories are when the the family went completely fucking nut show. I mean, like, and and yet we're still family, and we still care about each other, and we still stay connected. Even though we transgress some of the most horrible things that you could possibly do, we're still family. Like, there's something really important about that. Religion well, extends that to, you know, your religion. Everybody's family, right? But if we just think about it just evolutionarily, family is fucking important. They're the only people you can really depend on they're also the people most likely to kill you. But. Yeah, that's the that's the downside. But yeah, <laughs> as 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 a matter of evolutionary, I hate to say evolution. Well, I can say evolutionary biology. It's evolutionary psychology that's the racist one. Um, but as a that's matter right. as a matter of evolutionary biology, I mean, you're far safer in the ancestral environment with a very small, close knit group of people who know each other well and who can interact with one another on a daily basis you to, have for self-protection. And you can't trust and you can't trust the people from those other tribes um, right. who may have completely different and foreign ways. And right. of course And who are gonna be more um, you know loyal to their own family structures. Yeah. Of course we don't live I mean, in this the is ancestral. why we had all that intermarriage of, you know, tribes and whatever. That's how we combined and grew bigger. I mean, we're just recreating evolution here right now. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting to, to think about in that the period of civilization, if we are going to accept the the sort of the current modern archaeological thing, um, civilization and agriculture and we've had to push this date back because of finds like go back Lake Tepe. But basically, we're talking sure. 10,000 years. That's yeah, 10,000 well, years. Probably more like 15, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but 10,000 years. Oh, if you want to push it back to the Neolithic, okay, fine. Um, but I, I wouldn't consider that. I wouldn't consider that civilization. I think civilization. No, I wouldn't consider it civilization, but it was. Because I you're. Think because the you'd still be we can a, get to the beginnings of civilization yeah, but, of actual permanent settlements that had agriculture and all that stuff yeah you're you're probably down to about 10,000 years anything before that you're looking at hunter gatherers more or less well i mean ur was yeah about 10,000 years ago 9,000 9,000 or yeah about 9,000 7500 yeah. bc or somewhere around there something um, like that yeah well, modern humans have been here for as much as 250,000 years. So the, this last 10,000 years, while it seems like an extraordinarily long time to us in terms of, of, oh, the blip. of history, it is not a huge proportion of our biological time as modern humans on this planet because for it was like 240,000 years hunter-gatherers on the plains, um, 10,000 years, cities and agriculture. I wonder how much of, 
of our societal problems are the fact that we don't really know how to live together without going crazy like rats in a coffee can because you know biologically it is so foreign to our our <coughs> our evolutionary experience i don't know i mean the reason that we have tribes um that we formed these eventual you know what became at least city states or you know kingdoms um is because of our, our gregarious nature but i think the 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 real issues come when you, you start delineating who is what in terms of the hierarchy and that's always 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 going to be problematic there's always going to be a natural hierarchy in ancient times like like super prehistory ancient times it was easy whoever's the strongest <laughs> yes know? but now we're it was, it was that easy now uh, we're social primates who are prone to dominance hierarchies and right. by the way the very fact that i speak french and you speak german might be a reason for us to engage in war fairly regularly because i now have something that i can pin onto you as an other you're clearly and i might other. be able to convey my victory over you into something that benefits me yeah so i i think we're and i, I don't know any of this for sure obviously but i think we're still dealing with a lot of biological bs and i well I, yeah no of, of course we are absolutely we are i don't think there's any way but i wonder how much of it has these societal impacts that we've been talking about so how much of it is innate versus uh mental um yeah and, I, and by the way sure. i'm i i'm i'm perfectly happy to go 50 50 nature over nurture hell i'm happy to go 60 40 nature over nurture maybe even higher uh, i'm sorry nurture over nature right um I, I think obviously culture does play uh, play a role in our upbringing and in... well, but the, I think that's what happened for about BC, like about three thousand or so, is that culture started to become a more prominent um, factor in how people behaved, how they treated each other. Um, how how fuck how cultures were actually even formed and enforced um this is when you start to see the rise of the major religions uh judaism um being one of the oldest hinduism being one of the other oldest um and it was a code it was a code on how we work together and recognize one another as parts of the same code and treat each other with the same respect so that we don't have to constantly be warring. And that's the one thing that I think is recognizable throughout all the development of all the religions is we need to stop fighting each other. It doesn't mean that they're, they're not saying we, we shouldn't fight anybody. We, I mean, just like, hey, let's not, uh, let's, let's choose our battles. Let's uh, choose some people who we don't fight with and that we have common cause with. 
And that developed a lot of culture. And the development of actual culture of a spreadable, um, distributive culture changed into modernity uh, eventually. Uh, I think that was the, the big change that happened about three uh, three thousand BC or so, so about five thousand six thousand years ago, um, and that slowly became, you know, delineated and divinated out and and produced lots of other different cultures. But people start, I, and I don't think they recognize it as culture. I mean, why would you? It's a word we put on it, but they did recognize that, okay, tribes, okay, can we expand the tribe? Well, maybe we can expand the tribe really wide if we can find these commonalities. And that was the focus of Judeo-Christian and even Islamic um, uh, you know, religions was to find how we could all be connected to one another. Okay, uh, so, so let me interject here then. Let's assume that the history of civilization has been increasing our acceptance of what is us from our immediate family to our plan, okay. yeah, yeah. Wow. to our tribe, to our nation or city state, to ultimately the, the nation, however you want to define the nation. Right. So then I think the next argument would be, well, then why don't we want a world government? Why don't we want to see all humanity as us? and not as the other. And that, I think, gets us into some interesting discussions. Well, I'm hoping it's going to be on the next podcast because I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking myself that perhaps <laughs> that discussion, since we're two hours into this, should be a discussion that we should hold in uh, abeyance until next time. So I think with that in mind, it's time for us to say goodbye and uh, plan on picking this up next week. Although we won't, you know, we're going to talk about something completely different, as we always do. All right, Michael, have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. All right, you too, Dale. Bye. You're listening to the Observations Podcast for Friday, the 10th of March, 20. 23. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We appreciate the fact that you do. And well, heck, I guess I should say thanks for watching the podcast since that's what we're doing now. Anyway, have a great week. We will look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, so long. <laughs>